This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is number 72, Dennis Eckersley, pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. Dennis Eckersley. Eck. I think this is the biggest name that we've talked about thus far. This is definitely the biggest name we've talked about. So we should say first about why we chose him. Uh, A couple reasons. One, we hadn't covered any of the Oakland A's yet in the series. Second, we wanted to give a shout out to listener Eric in Baltimore, who had a spill on his bicycle, had an incident with a motorist. He requested Eck this week. Wish Eric all the best in recovery. Eric grew up in the Bay Area and was a big A's fan as a kid. But David, how on earth do we fit into one episode a discussion about a guy who's in the Hall of Fame and has 24 seasons of stats and has the kind of impact on baseball that Dennis Eckersley had? I think that listeners to the show should go look at the baseball reference site for Dennis Eckersley. His stats speak for themselves. He is one of the greatest closers of all time, also was a great starting pitcher earlier in his career. There's no way that we can cover every season. You know, sometimes we can cover a guy because he had five seasons and we could go in depth in every single bit of minutia. We're clearly going to have to gloss over some things with Eck, but hopefully what we can do is talk about his career in two parts. Eck as a starting pitcher and then later in his career as the best closer in baseball and maybe touch on some of the individual moments that are memorable and also a little bit about his personal life and struggles and some of the negativity that he's dealt with and come through on the other side. We've talked about it on other episodes. The numbering system in the top sets had star players with zeros or fives. Eck being number 72 probably wouldn't expect that from a guy who's in the Hall of Fame, but that maybe shows where he was at in his career. 1987 might have been the most difficult year of Dennis Eckersley's life. He went to the Oakland A's, back home, a homecoming to the Bay Area after a long career as a starting pitcher. And I don't think that anybody at this point, including the Topps Corporation, expected 11 years of closing dominance after after this. They sure didn't expect Dennis Eckersley at 38 years old to win a Cy Young Award and an MVP. (laughs) And I think he's just a a really amazing story. And um, hopefully that shows through that uh, I've been impressed and moved by Dennis Eckersley's story over the last week of reading about him. Fantastic. I think we're also going to get some Richard Marks in there too. So we have a lot to look forward to. So let's go to the front of the card here, David. Again, this is card number 72. We we see Eck having just finished a pitch, now back in a ready position, ready to field. This is one that has more of the look of live gameplay from a regular season, where you've got, because the crowd behind him, which is out of focus, but it looks like there are lots of fans back there, and you can kind of vaguely make out what looks like an umpire and a runner at third base. 
So this is a, a dramatic card to me. It definitely has the feel of an impressionist view of Eck on the mound. You have the iconic Dennis Eckersley look. His look did not change from 1975 till the modern day. He still <laughs> has the haircut with his hair covering his ears. You know, normally with a guy with long hair would tuck the hair behind the ears. X hair was always like covering his ears like a helmet. You have the mustache glaring at the batter. He's an intimidating looking guy. It's an iconic look and I appreciate his commitment to the look. Absolutely. So this is a, this is a great looking card. Now flipping to the back, we've already got 13 years of stats ahead of us. So there's no room for a fun fact. And he's going to be in the league for a long time after this card comes out. Dennis Eckersley, six foot two, 195, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Indians in June 1972, born October 3rd, 1954, Oakland, California. Raised in the Bay Area, Fremont, California. He said that he was hooked on baseball in 1962 when the San Francisco Giants made it to the World Series for the first time after moving from New York to San Francisco. The quote from Eckersley is, isn't that when everyone falls in love with baseball at eight years old? And <laughs> full admission here, the 1988 season was when I turned eight years old, and that's <laughs> part of why it is a, an important thing to me. He modeled his leg kick after one of his Giants idols, Juan Marichal. So Eckersley always had this high leg kick and a sidearm motion was kind of the hallmarks of, of his pitching style. He was a high school quarterback, but gave up football to protect his arm and was drafted, as you said, in the third round by the Indians in 1972. He had a brother and a sister. His brother was named Wally and his sister was named Cindy. Uh, as a youngster, he followed Wally's lead a lot. Wally was a couple years older than him. And Wally also got Dennis into drinking and they started drinking together as teenagers Wally left home shortly before Dennis was drafted by the Indians. So, David, now I'm looking on the screen. You've brought to my attention a picture of young Dennis when he was drafted by the Indians, 21 years old, coming into the major leagues. And I, this is a incredible – cannot wait to put this in the, in the notes. What a beautiful picture of a 1970s man. I mean, it's like the hair is the same. It's like, it's, it's exactly as you would expect. And these great jerseys from the Cleveland baseball team. Yeah. The kind of red polyester with a very interesting font, but Eckersley looking good, very lean young man in this picture. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's the kind of font you'd see in like a captain caveman uh, cartoon. <laughs> Yes, which I think is probably culturally inappropriate and maybe slightly offensive. But then again, it is the Cleveland Indians as the name of the team. So this young man had made it to the majors by 1975. He was uh, 20 years old when he came up to the majors. He had three impressive seasons in the minors, so impressive that they skipped AAA. Frank Robinson liked Eckersley's confidence and convinced the Indians that they should bring him up. And initially they had him in the bullpen. But that didn't last long. He ended up as a starter in 1975 and was the rookie pitcher of the year. In his first major league start, he shut out the Oakland A's and set a rookie record, not allowing a run until his 29th inning. 
Oh, wow. So he had a great rookie season uh, with the Indians and kind of established himself as a starting pitcher. He pitched for three seasons for the Indians, and in those three seasons, had some solid numbers, but normally his win-loss percentage was not great because he wasn't playing for great teams. In 1977, he did throw a no-hitter, and a moment from this no-hitter kind of tells us a little bit about X's personality. He's this flamboyant, confident guy on the mound, and he would you know, point and yell after striking people out. So he has this no-hitter going on Memorial Day. Five days before that, he had thrown a 12-inning complete game, and it <laughs> gave up no hits after the fifth inning. So he's, at this point, in the ninth inning, he's thrown 16 straight no-hit innings. <laughs> he gets two outs. A guy named Gil Flores is at the plate, and Flores gets distracted by the photographers coming out. And Eckersley points at him and yells at him, they don't want to take your picture. You're the last out. Get back in the box. <laughs> he struck out Gil Flores for the last out. And then in the next game, went six more no-hit innings. So he had a 21-inning no-hit streak Wow! as a 22-year-old pitcher. So you know, it kind of describes his cocky, aggressive, passionate, add to that this long hair and a mustache. And, and that kind of mentality got him into the all-star game in 1977 at 22 years old. He had really great control, which helped him later as a closer. The great Goose Gossage once said that he could hit a gnat in the butt with a pitch if he wanted to. Incredible control, dominating batters. Then getting into 1978, he ends up getting traded. What's the story here? On March 30th of 1978, Eckersley was traded from the Indians to the Red Sox. That same day, his first wife told him that she wasn't going to join him in Boston. And she told him that, uh, that their marriage was over and she didn't love him anymore. He later found out that that led to his trade. Wow. She was having an affair with his teammate and best friend, Rick Manning. The team knew that this was happening and knew that they had to trade one of the players. They chose poorly. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> Manning was a fine, uh, you know, fine outfielder, but not an all-star and definitely not a Hall of Famer. This is one of the one of those incidents of kind of public candor and humility that Eckersley is known for. On a recent Red Sox broadcast, Eckersley was asked if there was anybody that he was in a rivalry with that he was a, a friend of. And his response was, I don't know about a rivalry, but my best friend stole my wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's great content. If Brene Brown was, you know, here on our podcast, I think she would really laud Dennis Eckersley for his vulnerability. That's something that I have found very moving about Dennis's story. Manning is an announcer now, and Eckersley runs into him, and they are still relatively friendly. Eckersley was asked about it, and he said, he's the father to my daughter. He said, it's been 40 years. It's not about forgiveness. It's about moving on with your life and living it. And at the time, he was 23 years old, coming off of an outstanding season. He had a two-year-old daughter, and now he's divorced and moving to a new team, single in a new city. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that he was depressed and drinking a lot at that time and, and also very angry. 
and he took out that anger on opposing batters, as we'll see when he went to the Red Sox. Yeah, he really did. I mean, his first year there, he's got 20 wins, 2.99 ERA, fourth in the Cy Young voting. Unfortunately, that Red Sox team blew a 14-game lead over the Yankees. And in another kind of Eckersley moment, there was a po- at one point the Red Sox lost four straight games to the Yankees to fall into a tie. Eckersley pitched in the third game, and it was 0-0, and a pop fly dropped, after which the Yankees scored seven runs. Mm. The reporters after the game surrounded the second baseman who let the ball drop, and Eck said, he didn't load the bases, he didn't hang an 0-2 slider to Bucky Dent, the loss goes next to my name, ask me about losing, not him. So it's, this is a, another one of these hallmarks of his career that he would take the blame for losses and accept it and talk to reporters. 1979, again, an ERA under three, 17 wins, and still dominating. Those seasons from 1977 to 79, he's averaging around 250 innings per season. He said that took a toll on him, throwing hard for that many innings, along with alcohol abuse. And at this point, he's still drinking a lot. And it leads to some unpredictable results for Eckersley in the next few years for the Red Sox. 80 and 81, a little bit higher ERA. 1982, he has a strong start to the season and actually started the All-Star game. But by 1983, things really take a turn. His ERA is well over five, and it looks like the drinking and partying kind of got caught up with him. Yeah, he said that this was rock bottom for him for his career, and he lost a lot of speed on his fastball. He still had pretty good control, but his strikeouts were dropping. He felt like by 1984, he strengthened his shoulder and was getting back into the swing of things. And that leads us maybe to our next, the next step in Eck. (laughs) Yeah, this would be, in any normal card, this would be the fun fact, would be that he gets, that he was traded to the Cubs for Bill Buckner in late May of 1984. But, you know, there's no room on the card for a fun fact. So we'll just have to say it that way. Yes, and Eck was one of a few very notable pickups that the Cubs made in that 84 season, along with Rick Sutcliffe, in a year where the Cubs made it to the playoffs and very nearly made it to the World Series. And Eck was pretty solid for the Cubs, going 10-8 and with a 3.03 ERA. But his one appearance in the playoffs, he gave up five runs in a loss to the Padres. 1985, back to his old ways, ERA around three. 201 innings pitched. 1986, though, begins another fall off toward rock bottom. Matt, as listeners to this podcast will know, in the 80s and before, the Cubs didn't play night games. So Eck had a lot of nighttime availability to go to bars in the city of Chicago. Chicago bar hours go till 4 a.m. Eck's drinking increased due to the number of day games that the Cubs played. He said that he lost a lot of his self-esteem and he kind of fell into self-destruction. After that 1986 season was the point where he hit rock bottom in his personal life with his drinking. He said that on Christmas 1986, he was at his sister-in-law's house. He got drunk and his sister-in-law recorded him and she made him watch it the next day. And he said he didn't recognize that person and he didn't like that guy. And so in January of 1987, he went to rehab, admitted he was an alcoholic, and started his road to recovery. 
The Cubs, though, they, they trade him, I guess, soon after he's out of rehab. Yeah, in April of 1987, he's traded to the A's. The A's said they didn't know about him going to rehab or his drinking problem, and they had just scouted him and knew about his reputation as a competitor and his skill. He said that he wanted to come back and try to be a starter, but instead he ends up becoming the closer when Jay Howell got injured in mid-1987. So as we see on the card, Eck ends up with a 3.03 ERA and 16 saves in 1987, and he's kind of reinvented himself in Oakland. Yeah, so at this point, and he is sober, and he said that he would not have been able to pitch every day in the way that a closer or a setup man would in his previous life as an alcoholic. He said he was a new person, basically, that his whole story and his time in Oakland, he said, was dreamlike for him. His parents were able to come see him pitch, and for the first time in his life, he, he felt good and felt good about himself. There's one other thing that happened in 1987 that we need to make sure we cover as part of the story here. And that's a calling back to his brother, Wally. Wally Eckersley, after he left home, he had experienced homelessness and substance abuse and also had a serious drinking problem. And Dennis said that Wally would show up at spring training or show up to games unannounced and often was kind of unrecognizable. In June of 1987, Wally was arrested after he and another man kidnapped a woman, robbed her, stabbed her, and left her for dead in a field. At Wally's trial, Dennis went public with his alcoholism and testified regarding his and his family history of alcoholism as a character witness for Wally. Wally was convicted and sentenced to 48 years for that kidnapping, attempted murder, and robbery. And according to the Colorado Department of Corrections, he is currently still incarcerated. Obviously a huge event in X life and a really tragic story. He turns the page in 1988, starts a run of five seasons in a row of incredible performances. Yes, over 88 to 1992, Eckersley had 220 saves. That's I think the <laughs> next highest was in the 170 range. So in 360 innings, he had a 1.9 ERA and a whip of .792. In that time, he walked 38 guys. Total. <laughs> in 360 innings. <laughs> and 12 of those were intentional. Oh my gosh. And also throwing over a strikeout an inning. So 10 strikeouts for every walk. Wow. He made four all-star games, and that culminated in 1992 with that MVP Cy Young season. In that time, with Dennis Eckersley, Tony La Russa, Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, revolutionized the closing role, bringing a guy in to shut the door, and that was Eckersley's role, and he did it incredibly well. Why don't we go through a couple of the highlights of each of those five years? The first moment we'll need to look at, though, is one that we've already talked about on the show. That is Game 1 of the World Series versus the Dodgers in 1988. Not only does this moment get marked as kind of a, a failure on X part, but it maybe is more so a success in scouting by the Dodgers. According to one report, Mel Didier, who was a Dodgers scout, had a scouting report on Eckersley and told all of the lefties on the Dodgers, if Eckersley gets you at 3-2 and there's a runner at second base, and if it's the tying or winning run, Eckersley will throw you a backdoor slider on 3-2. He said, don't forget that because that's 
what he will do as sure as I'm standing here breathing. So Kirk Gibson comes to bat in the ninth inning. The count goes to 3-2. There's a man on second base, and we know what happens next. Mm-hmm. Eckersley threw that backdoor slider. It got too much of the plate, and Gibson hit a home run. One of those famous home run celebrations in World Series history. Crowd goes wild. Meanwhile, Eck was the you know MVP of the ALCS. He had saves in all four games. He hadn't given up a home run in months. He's he's shocked. You know the Dodgers win. Kirk Gibson hobbles around the bases. And true to form, how does Eck respond? He goes back to the clubhouse and he stands and answers questions from every single reporter. For over an hour, after giving up the biggest home run in his first appearance in the World Series, Sober Eckersley knew that this is not the worst thing in the world. So so that's 1988. 1989, the A's get redemption. They sweep the Giants in the Bay Bridge series. And Eck gets the last out of the series. Another dominating year for him. Coming back after losing in that 88 series... The A's continue that streak of of winning ways and actually win the World Series. They were on the right end of a sweep in 1989. So that's good for Eck, good for the A's. 1990.61 ERA. He gave up five earned runs the entire season and walked four guys total the entire season. Just a dominant performance. He's just so good. That year he was yeah. amazing. <laughs> that boggles the mind. Unfortunately, in that season, the A's lost to Eric Davis and the Reds, as we talked about in the first episode of the series. Now, moving to 1991, the highlight we're going to lift up, David, is not a an Eck performance. Well, it is. It, it, it is an Eck performance on the baseball field, but not in the way that you might think. And it includes Bob Euchre. And it includes Richard Marks. The video for Richard Marks, Take This Heart. This video includes Bob Euchre as the announcer of a baseball game between the Oakland Athletics and the Chicago Cubs. On the mound, you have Dennis Eckersley. You have some other players shown. You have Jose Canseco. Ricky Henderson. Greg Maddox is in the dugout for the Cubs. At the plate, you have Richard Marks. Richard Marks with, I would say, a pretty conventional stance, but very feathery hair. Uh, his hair is it's beautiful. <laughs> There's so much product being used. <laughs> Looking at Richard Marks' stand at the plate, he looks so tiny. <laughs> he looks like a child. Uh, in a situation similar to what Eckersley faced in 1988, you have Richard Marks goes down 0-2 in the count, and he hits a home run off Dennis Eckersley to win a Cubs World Series. And it's almost like something out of Andy Van Slyke's book. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't recognize this song by the name, Take This Heart, but once I heard it, I, I remembered the chorus. Uh, catchy song, Richard. It is a good song. You could definitely hear it being at the, like, end the happy montage end of like Karate Kid 3 or something like that. I think it was one of the fun facts on another Dennis Eckersley card that his favorite artist was Richard Marks. Ah, good job, Richard Marks. Good job, Dennis Eckersley, to kind of be... Uh, I think that some other players might not 
want to relive a moment like that and might not want to be on the mound giving up a game-winning home run to a, a tiny feathered hair rock musician. It was convincing acting. So that's the 1991 highlight. 1992, we wrap up this section with more conventional kind of highlights for X career. And this is the extremely rare MVP Cy Young performance for a closer. I think that this goes back to the baseball writers not necessarily knowing how to quantify greatness of a closer. Eckersley had 51 saves, a 1.91 ERA. Opponents hit 158 against him with runners in scoring position. He kept up that dominance. This season might not have been even as good as his 1990 season, but he was the best closer on a very good Oakland A's team. So this 1992 season might not have even been Eckersley's best season. I've seen Dennis as MVP questioned as one of those undeserving based on modern metrics, but I think the explanation for this one, there wasn't a guy on a winning team that somebody could point to and say, that's the guy who definitely is the most valuable player. Even on Eckersley's own team, you had Ricky Henderson had a pretty good year. McGuire had a very good year, but McGuire hit like 265. The Blue Jays, who won the World Series in 1992, had three guys who got MVP votes. So they split those votes, and they didn't really have a out-and-out massive star. They had Roberto Alomar, Joe Carter, who were had very good seasons, but nothing that was that looked MVP worthy. And maybe it is uh, a culmination of the, the series of greatness that he had that everybody just said, you know what, that's the guy who deserves this. Eckersley was even asked about relief pitchers winning the Cy Young or the MVP award. And he said, you know, I don't think that it's often deserved, but he also said, I'm not giving mine back. Eck was the last reliever to win an MVP. Only Eric Gagne has won a Cy Young as a relief pitcher since Eckersley did it in 92. So a massive accomplishment for a guy who was, at this point, 38 years old. So Dennis and the A's uh, end 1992, falling in the ALCS to Toronto. After 1992, he was still a solid closer for the A's for three more years, and he was 40 years old at that point. Tony Larusa ends up going to St. Louis, and Eck follows him. So he has two more good seasons with the Cardinals in 1996 and 1997, and then closes out his career in 1998 with a final year with the Red Sox. And ends up, after his career, to be a studio analyst and color commentator for the Sox. And he's a commentator to this day, David, so we know where he is now and what he's been up to. But I think that we should, it makes sense to try to wrap up just his legacy as a player and as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Interestingly, when he was elected to the Hall of Fame, he was asked what his plaque should look like. And he said, as long as the mustache looks right, everything will be okay. <laughs> he had these two distinctive parts of his career. This 88 tops card, he had 157 wins as a starter. So a very solid career as a starting pitcher, but that's not what got him into the Hall of Fame. It was his dominance as a closer. He's one of two guys in the history of baseball to have a 20-win season and a 50-save season. John Smoltz is the other. And it's not often that you have a guy who's both dominant as a starter and then for such a long period of time as a closer. 
when he retired, he had 1,071 games pitched, which was the all-time record, which has since been surpassed. He had 390 saves, which is seventh all-time. It is. I mean, we could go on for a long time uh, rattling off more stats about his career. But as we close the book on, on Eck, it, it's equally difficult to put a fine point on the kind of complex person and on the kind of story that we've found out about him through this time. Where do you start when trying to sum up what Dennis has been like? We try to keep this podcast under two hours. I could talk <laughs> for a very long time about Dennis Eckersley. And with each article that I read about his personality and his life, it was more and more interesting and um, and kind of tragic. He had a brother and a sister. We talked a little bit about Wally. His sister, Cindy, died in August of 2018 at age 58, and he said that she drank herself to death. Wally fell into alcoholism, and that landed him in jail. Dennis was able to overcome his alcohol addiction and find a second act in pitching and make it into the Hall of Fame. He was able to overcome professional and personal disappointments throughout the 70s and 80s and go on to have his best closing performances after some breakdowns and some uh, personal issues that that would have destroyed other people. Something that really struck me about Dennis is the way that he talks about his psyche on the mound. And you have this guy, and even in this picture, he looks so intimidating. And you have this mustache and this kind of wild man look. But he said that he was afraid every time he got on the mound. And he would get fired up by that fear and that his his fear of failure is what drove him. And you can almost see it in some interviews about his commentating where he just seems very nervous. And here's this incredibly successful guy who, once the camera's on, he seems like a natural, but is just nervous energy the whole time. And that's what he how he was on the mound as well. This kind of over-the-top, flamboyant, cocky guy that a lot of that was a cover for his fear. And I don't know, I hope that we don't focus too much on sad here. We we talk a lot, of, a lot about heavy issues, but Dennis had so many high points in his career too, and he seems to really love baseball. I'm glad that he was able to get back on track, and and it seems like his personal life is better now. And also for his commitment to that look, it's, uh, it takes a lot to have that kind of hairstyle and mustache for 40-plus years. <laughs> I, I think that that iconic image of him giving up that 1988 home run is maybe the thing that he's a- asked most about. Recently, Kirk Gibson was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he wanted to apologize to everybody that he felt he had wronged. And he confronted Eckersley and said, I wasn't trying to show you up. I was just reacting emotionally. And Eckersley said, you've got to be kidding me. I never thought of that once. You know how many people I pointed at after I struck him out. I would have been dancing around the bases. <laughs> In 2018, the Red Sox played the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, and Eckersley threw out the first pitch of a World Series game. And that pitch was caught by Kirk Gibson. And it's this... Mm really wonderful moment and they both tell each other how much they love each other and it's really this um great and open and vulnerable moment i love it that is a beautiful moment this is a common card in the beckett guide and you know i can think back that 
in finding these cards, we were always looking for the rookies with the potential, looking for the undiscovered rookie who we hoped would turn into something great and to find them before anyone else did. But here in the 1988 set was a guy who was a known quantity (laughs) to most people, but he had even more greatness to go that they didn't uh, recognize. And, And so it's an amazing story of a really complicated guy with some tragedy that he's faced, but who overcame and really performed at the highest level. And it's quite a great story. So thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you to Eric out there. Get well soon. Thank you to all of you listening at home. If you've got an amazing mustache, we would love to hear from you. Send us a picture on Twitter. We are there at tops 1988 and we'll see you next week.